Welcome to Writers Talking TV, brought to you by the Writers Guild of Canada. I'm Dennis McGrath. If you're a fan of werewolves, and let's be honest, who isn't, you've probably already caught Bitten Scent. The Freshman series, an adaptation of a series of books by Canadian Kelly Armstrong, follows the adventures of werewolf Elena Michaels and her close-knit pack. Bitten's sexy fun fired up ratings for both space and sci-fi earlier this year. The second season is currently being written for a 2015 return. We caught up with series creator and showrunner Dagan Frickland, fresh from the Bitten writing room on a June night in Toronto at the TIFF Bell Lightbox. Wow. Hey. Hi, Hi, Dagan. Welcome, uh, Dagan uh, Frickland, everybody. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Yeah, that's awesome. So this is kind of, this is going to be a weird one because I, uh, I, I worked for you a little bit on this show. Sure did. So it's a little bit of sort of nepotism as far as that goes. I also work for the Space Channel. And I think this is the first time. Sure did. So it's, you know, all in the family kind of thing. But more importantly, I remember actually when I met you, I remember the first day I met you, it was 2007, and it was at a bar that has since sadly moved in Vancouver called the Irish Heather, and it was a wonderful sort of gathering of writers, and you, I had heard your name before, but I'd never met you, and you were there, and you were delightful, and you were working on Robson Arms at the time. So I wonder if you can cast your, you know, your thoughts back to uh, that younger, more innocent Dagan Frickland. Uh, <laughs> Tell us a little bit of how you came to be uh, to screenwriting and sort of what your first experiences were. How did you get involved in this racket slash game? Uh, I came into film first before television. Um, my sister-in-law was working on a documentary, and I just finished a master's of creative writing degree. I moved back to Vancouver, and uh, the company that she was producing this through is called Cadence Entertainment. So when we finished the documentary, they absorbed me into the company as a production, no, producer's assistant. And then I sort of moved up the ladder to uh, associate producer, which is a credit that means nothing in the, in the <laughs> world. Sort of a, a token credit. Um, sorry for the associate producers that are in the audience. And oh, um, they know. <laughs> Uh, it means that you do a lot of work and they don't pay you very much money, so they give you the credit. And so, yeah, I was in feature, uh, the feature world, and then I started doing development with that feature film company. And then um, at a certain point, I just took the leap and went to work for an animation company as an intern in their story department, uh, coordinating scripts and also writing for them. And that was how I got into writing, was through animation. Had you always wanted to write? Yes, I had been writing, but I'd been writing fiction beforehand. Right. I did not write a lick of dialogue before mm -hmm. this. Everything was in internal monologue. And so this was like the big transition, was to learn how to write dialogue and to learn how to write. And, and so being a development uh, executive was great, because I read a lot of scripts. I did know a lot of scripts. And so it was a really good... Uh, you know, cauldron in which to learn how to write the kind of dialogue that we write, which is kind of fake. Like, it it needs to sound realistic, but it also needs to convey a lot of information yeah. in a way that doesn't sound like it's conveying information. Yeah, there's always that terrible thing when you read somebody that's actually going, rather than verisimilitude for veracity, and you get, like, 
you know, conversations are exactly as boring as they are in real life. Yeah. And you go, oh, that's not good. What about some of those painful early lessons? What were, what were, I, I guess, what were in those early jobs? You can think of. Did you have any mentors? What were the most important things you learned in those first uh, stumbling screenwriting jobs that you took? Uh, what was your learning curve like? Well, my first live action show was Cold Squad with Pete Mitchell. Uh, so, like, I couldn't have asked for a better mentor in terms of showrunner than Pete Mitchell. And one of the first lessons that I got was from Shelley Erickson. And it was, um, it was a, a note that was D-W-A-L, do with a look. So in mm -hmm. lieu of a line of dialogue, just trust that your actors can convey that with a look. And that will be exponentially more dramatic and exciting than giving them a line of dialogue. Right, Canadian TV shout out. Those of you who don't know, Peter Mitchell is the uh, dyspeptic somewhat. Um, mumbling. He's our favorite curmudgeon. Favorite curmudgeon, he's the showrunner of Murdoch Mysteries. He's the guy that basically came in and took over Mur Murdoch Mysteries and made it you know, a bigger hit in season seven than it was before, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, so uh, what kind of writer would you describe yourself as in your natural state? Are you, are you a social writer? Are you a procrastinator? Are you a doubter? Do you doubt yourself? Are you oh, fast? who you doesn't? Slow? Well, some don't. Some don't. <laughs> really? Yeah. I think those are the ones that maybe aren't great writers. I don't know. Like, I think um, it's a odd combination of massive ego and incredible self-doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah, I, I am a little bit of a procrastinator, but I'm also, I create this script schedule that is like, you know, the trains are coming in at a certain time. And, and so for me, deadlines must be hit. And so I, I'm a right-to-deadline person. I also, uh, when I'm on a deadline, have the cleanest house mm -hmm. in town. Oh, yeah, you're one of those people? Yeah, no oh. food in my fridge ever. Right. Super clean. What about, uh, are you a morning writer? Are you a, in your natural state? Do you write in the morning? Are you a, a midnight person? Are you, what, what kind of, or do you, all the sort of, let, let's get all the things about your habits out. When do you write? Do you, do you start analog and go digital lately? Are you on the computer all the time? What's your dirty little writing secrets? I'm on the computer all the time. I write from 10 till 2. Then I take a nap. Then I write from 4 till 6. Then I call it a day. Then the next day from 10 till 2, the first thing I do is go back over the, the little bit I leave myself also the last exciting scene so mm. that when I come in the next morning, I have a cool thing to write. Yeah. I don't write to the cool thing. Yeah. I leave the cool thing for the next morning. Yeah. Um, I know also when I'm completely inside a show, I dream the show. Yep. So I wake up and whatever glitchy thing I left the night before has sort of unlocked in the morning. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, kind of super nerd thing I tend to sleep with the computer in my bed right um, and that is that's, you know what that goes way beyond super nerd <laughs> that's like a level of sad it used to be a stack of books and now it's a laptop so right. and because there were times where I would wake up and I would jot down the note mm -hmm. of like oh yeah this scene needs to be this and then it was completely illegible and like right. just this chicken scrum. the room is full of smoke right yeah yeah. Um, so what I do is I'll wake up and just start writing <laughs> sideways. And, yeah, I've, I think I, I might 
get to the point where I start blinking it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Good. All right. Fair enough. Um, tell us about how you became involved with Bitten. What's the story of uh, where you approached? Was it, was it, were you aware of the books before? How did you come to be involved with that project? Uh, I was approached. I had worked on a series before with a few of the producers that are on the show called J-Pod. Right. And uh, we had a great working relationship from J-Pod. And in the interim between J-Pod and Bitten, I did a um, movie of the week for them about Rena Verk, who was a girl who was swarmed and murdered in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, that was like the most incredible and yet brutal writing experience of my life but um so they well, what about it because it was a true story it was a true story we were working with her parents on it Ooh, wow. uh, and her grandparents and i did five months of research and wrote it in two weeks because it was sort of like this is wow. something that's been percolating and i need to get it out of my system it's a it's a Incredible story, and it's just brutal, brutal story. And so it was sort of like I can't, once I start this, I can't let it in my system for too long because mm-hmm. it, it is every day, um, you know, as a writer, you put yourself in, in the psychology of when when we were working on motive, the psychology of the killer. You're in the psychology of the killer for most of the time. And in this year, it was I was in the psychology of somebody that I have to send off to be killed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really tough. Um, so du- so during that process, they um, it was actually a company called Hoodwink and and John Barbazan and Patrick Bannister who came across the books. They had the rights had become available. Mm-hmm. It had been optioned to be developed into a feature with Angelina Jolie, and that sort of went through development and didn't. Um, happen. And so when the rights became available again, John and Patrick brought it to uh, No Equal, which at that time was Larry Sugar and J.B. Sugar. Mm-hmm. Larry since retired. And they optioned the books. And they went out to a number of people and said, here's what we have. And if you're interested in this project, let us know what your take on the project is. And so because of my previous relationship with, with Larry and J.B. And, and John and Patrick, um, I m- made my pitch. And at that time, the show is really, for me, what what spoke to me was this character who's trying to live two lives. And I was some a writer who is based in Vancouver. And <laughs> during that time, every gig that I had was in Toronto. Yeah. And I really found that I was living these weird, like, sliding doors lives. Like, mm-hmm. m- my life is very different between those two cities um, because the cities are very different. So, you know, in Vancouver, I jog and I right. hike and I do all the cliche Vancouver stuff that you think of. And here, it was different. You know, we drink in bars. Wh- what are you looking at me for? <laughs> Frickland hanging me out to dry. Um, so, um, that's uh, so. Uh, so, there's an interesting word that you bring up there for anybody here who might not be fully, v- you know vetted into the mafia that is writing here, um, the take. So the take, obviously, is obviously when you, when you have to adapt a, a property, that's what they want to know for you. Basically, they're asking you, you know, what do you like about it? What do you do about it? Wh- where would you go with it? What can you bring so to it? What can you bring to it? So when you go into that meeting with them, 
what did you say? What was your take on the bitten material? Well, I just felt like it spoke to me because I was somebody who was living this this dual life. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I wanted to bring to it. And uh, so when we went to pitch the network, and I think there were other people that were pitching the network, that's what stuck with the network also, mm-hmm. was, um, you know, maybe they thought I was a strong female character, but I could bring a strong female character who was pulled between these two lives. And then eventually you've got to choose. I haven't done that yet. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm learning through this character. Maybe it would be easier if you found something else in Toronto other than drinking in bars. Oh, snap. Sorry. <laughs> um, no. Uh, it, what about, tell me about adaptations. Yes. Do you find, is there a pressure with adaptations that you don't feel with originals? Do you feel, do you feel a responsibility of the material? Have you done adaptations before? I find, well, I find them really fa- fascinating, yeah. Yeah, J-Pod, but with J-Pod, um, Doug was, Doug, Douglas Copeland, um, my close personal friend, Doug, uh, was involved with us. And it was, a, it was a decision that he made because he had been working in isolation as a novelist for so long. He just wanted to know what it would be like to work with a team of writers. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was sort of a, a great social experiment for him as well. And oh, he's just so lovely. And he was so gracious in terms of creating this space with which we could blow out his world. Mm-hmm. And and he was um, very involved. Like, he was in the writer's room for all the breaking. And there were certain things that he, like, you know, art department, props. Of course, because he's a visual artist. He was very involved in the look of the show. Right. Um, but gave us great free reign to blow out the story and the characters. And so that was the, you know, previous to... Uh, Bitten, that was the adaptation that I'd worked on. With Bitten, um, the novelist Kelly Armstrong was just incredibly gracious with just giving us the leeway to expand the world in for the medium. Because, mm-hmm. y- you know, you have to understand that there are... N- novels are different beasts than television. Mm-hmm. And novels exist sometimes in a character's head. And so that first novel of Bitten is really from the point of view of the main character. Yeah, it's a lot of internal monologue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And a lot of, well, I guess what would be in television, exposition. So we have to take that and translate it into a visual medium and Mm -hmm. make it come to life that way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's funny right now, you know, we live in, now we live in the social media world in the aftermath of Game of Thrones and you've got these, you know, arguments about the book partisans versus the... It, it, it sort of seems like there's three groups now when it comes to adaptations of especially genre stuff on television. You have, like, the book fundamentalists, right? Who, if you change anything, you are damned forever, you know? And then there's the people that are like, all right, I'll give you some rope, but not a lot. And then there's the people that... The, the much larger group that have never read the books and will never... Books? They're, you know? Yeah. Um, how do you... How much do you think about that while you're doing it? Or do you have to get all that out of your head and just serve what you see as the meat of the story? Um, 
a little bit of both. I mean, we, the, as I say, the, the first book is very much from one character's point of view. Mm -hmm. So we had to take that and you're with her the whole time. And then we have a cast that we have to service and character arcs that need to be blown out and developed for each of the characters so that each one of those characters in the pack has a satisfying journey through the first season. And, you know, we made the decision to play suspense to a certain point and then play cards up and right. then it's thriller from that point on and we made some off book decisions that um in terms of which characters we killed well can you walk us through walk us through some of that walk us through a few of the things that you changed from the book to the tv adaptation and why uh in the book one character named logan dies early on the book and we made the choice to keep that character alive and the reason why was because we were playing with bringing Elena back to Toronto and, and her life in Toronto and we wanted her to have a talk to within the pack and this was a character who was we moved his base of operation to Toronto and um, in the book he was a lawyer and Dennis is a great idea was to change him to a therapist. Was so that that, me? that was you, my friend. Um, so that she we could play a misdirect mm -hmm. in the early episode of her having having a therapist and then it turns out that it's a pack member. Right. Um, and it just worked out really well that this was somebody who was studying human psychology who's a werewolf. Mm -hmm. And uh, the character Pete who dies in episode three spoiler um, he died later in the book yeah. and we moved him up and it was a it was a great um, you know casting coup for Joel Keller that yeah, he was yeah, able yeah. to come in and make that a absolutely beloved character so that when we killed him he you know you completely felt it well part of that is I, and I remember part of, part of the calculation some some of it starts to be Kim you start playing poker with the people that, that read the books too. Yeah. Like I remember very clearly us having a discussion of, all right, let's let's make it Pete. Yeah. And let's make you love Pete. Yeah. And let's make it so at the end of three, when Pete dies, people that read the books and everybody goes, oh my God, nobody's safe. Yeah. And that was something we consciously went for. Yeah. Right? Then later uh, we kill another character in episode seven uh, who doesn't die in the books at all. Mm -hmm. Like through the whole book series, he's alive. Right. Um. But the reason why we did that was because we wanted to shift story for another character, yeah. Nick Sorrentino, played by Steve Lund. Yeah. And so we wanted to just give Steve more to play. Yeah. And so in, in killing the character that we killed in episode seven, because we wanted also to keep the stakes high in that same way of, yeah. like, anybody can die. And this is a character that you love. And, you know, we wanted to sort of shift the sands for book fans a little bit to say, eh, this, this isn't the book. Yeah. Not like we wanted to piss off book fans at all. Yeah. And we did for a few. Um, but we just wanted to make this a bit of a different beast. And like the expectations that you have, don't have those expectations. Yeah. Because things may change a little bit as we're going through. Plus also there is that w when you're doing an ensemble, an ensemble piece is kind of, especially one where, it, like Bitten, where very clearly Elena is at that front of that poster. Yes. And you're trying to play and, and keep a whole bunch of other people alive, but you got to do broad strokes for them. Um, 
by that point, I was off the show, and I remember watching that episode. And when he died, I'm like, "Oh my god, they killed him! Oh, <laughs> oh my god, that's crazy!" And then, and then going, "Oh man, I know why she killed him. That's awesome. That means that he's got to grow up." And blah, 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 blah. yeah, and suddenly you start seeing the possibilities, and you're like, "And of course, it was an absolutely electric moment in in the series. It really was. It was beautiful and wonderfully done." Yeah. So yeah, uh, it really shifted the whole back half of the season from yeah. eight through. 12, like 8 through eight through 13. 8 through 13 just felt like a total different beast once we did that. Yeah. yeah. What else, uh, was there anything else that, you, that sort of big changes that, that, that came out? Um, the big bad for season one mm-hmm. was completely off book. So, and also Rachel, Rachel mm-hmm. was completely off book. Um, because we kept Logan alive yeah. through all of season one, we created a relationship for him to show... You know, this is something that we wanted to show. If Elena had an ideal relationship with her Toronto boyfriend, Philip, it could be like this. But then the complication that we threw at Logan was that he knocked up his girlfriend. Right. And then it turned out to be a boy. And in this mythology, if you uh, are pregnant with a boy, yeah. it's a werewolf. And she doesn't know anything about this side of him. Yeah. And through most of season one, actually sort of left off season one that she doesn't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you'll see in 13 what we do with her. Awesome. Okay. Uh, so you did the pilot. You did the second script. Then comes your order and you put together a room. Yes. Now, you, you actually did a two-stage room. You did a development room for a little bit. And yeah. you, did, you broke a few episodes and then you got the order and you, and you went to um, uh, a series and put together your team there. Yes. Walk us through a little bit of... Um, of what were you looking for when you put together the team of writers? What were the problems going into that room that you wanted to solve that you wanted to you know, pull in other minds for? Um, our development room first. Uh, I had a, a co-showrunner, Grant Rosenberg, who was with me through the run of season one. He's gone off to a sci-fi show called Olympus now. Um, so, and Grant was really great in terms of production and you know, helping us staff are because most of us were from Vancouver and he had been out here on Lost Girl and um, helped us staff our whole crew out here and just had a really good you know story sense and um, and you were in the development room and Karen Hill and so in that development room it was like well I brought you because you get action and Grant gets action I'd never written action before Mm -hmm. and and we're an action show and Karen um, I had targeted for episode 106 which was uh, a wedding episode. And she had come from Less Than Kind. And she did some great work on Less Than Kind with family dynamics. So I sort of thought, okay, she'll be really good with that tension, mother-in-law kind of stuff. So that was the development room. And then um, coming into the production rooms, Grant Rosenberg, myself, Wills Mack, who's right here, who I've worked with on the last four shows. And um, just brother from another mother, totally get each other. Mm-hmm. And he is the genre king. Like, you can tell this guy any horror film, and he's seen it. Yeah. And has a, a very strong opinion about it. And so Will's that was Mac great. was not confused by a second of True Detective. <laughs> Got every reference, you know. Yeah. Um, and Will Pasco, who had come um, to us from Orphan Black. So, again, genre writer. And then... Um, 
we also brought in Julia Cohen to do a freelance episode 10. She was coming off of Dallas. And again, episode 10 was like a kind of um, one of our lighter episodes. It's Elena goes back to Toronto. Clay, her ex-wolf, werewolf lover, comes back with her. They end up moving in, uh, staying with her human boyfriend, Philip. There's great sort of tension there. And so Julia was really great. Coming from Dallas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The awesome. show Dallas. She's now on Elizabeth Hurley's show, The Royals. Oh, yeah. All right. And Will Pascoe is on Da Vinci's Demons. Hmm. And you're on Camp X. And Karen Hill is on Motive. Everybody's working. Everybody's working. So you do the development deal, you're getting toward production, and you had a problem to, to solve right up front, and that was uh, handling the wolf stuff. So right. So let, let's talk a little bit about that kind of problem, you know, the, the idea that you don't, because that was a major obstacle. You know, that was the thing that you didn't know if you could do. And, uh, and so tell us, how do, you, how do you approach the writing of the wolf stuff and integrating that and what you can do and what you can't do and what the limitations are and how you make that work in the story? There were some early, early meetings in terms of do we use real wolves? Do we use wolf puppets? And there are options in either direction. There are, uh, there's a company here, I think it's in Ontario, that has... Um, like wolf puppets that are, are made from real wolves mm-hmm. that um, it's not as terrifying as it sounds. And then, um, you know, so we'd, we'd looked at other shows. So Hemlock Grove used real wolves. Game of Thrones uses CG wolves. Um, or do we do a combination of the two? And we just decided because... We had looked at some test screenings of real wolves versus CG wolves, and for what we needed in terms of our our mutts, which are werewolves who aren't part of the pack. So the pack is like organized, they have rules. Mutts are rogue. They're sort of rule lawless, deadwood, lone wolves. And because we needed them to be menacing, when we looked at real wolves versus CG wolves, there was just no comparison. CG mm. wolves were menacing, and they could emote what we needed to emote. Also, real wolves are really smart, and they're hard to train. Right. And so to bring them in and to get them to do what you need them to do and hit their mark and all of that, it's, it's really hard. So we went with a slightly more expensive option, which is CG. And we worked with a company called Atmosphere in Vancouver. We're, our show is a... This is super boring, but we're a, a BC, Ontario co-production. Mm-hmm. So we um, spend part of our budget in BC, and that's our Visifax budget, is with Atmosphere. And they, um, previous to us, they had done Primeval and us, and I think they're also doing Hemlock Grove now mm-hmm. because they did our wolves really well. Right. Yeah. So when you see our wolves, um, like in episode 105, where Elena is bitten by clay, the fur is just amazing. Um, and there, you know, there are certain things with the wolves where, you know, do they have gravity enough? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. But some apparently, real wolves don't really. They're they're actually quite light on their feet. Hmm. They've studied them. They've um, integrated in, integrated real wolf, you know weight into everything that they do. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. All right, well, we're going to take a break for the screening now. Um, before we get into that, though, this is, uh, you, you've got your prepared statement, yes. setting, up, setting up what's happening here. Yes. Do you want to read that first? Sure. 
put it in large type. Elena Michaels is the world's only female werewolf. At the top of the series, we meet her a year after she's left her pack and ex-lover Clayton Danvers, the werewolf who turned her. She's in Toronto trying to have a normal human life with boyfriend Philip McAdams, who has no idea she's a wolf. She gets called back to the pack when a rogue werewolf, a mutt, kills a human. This is the tip of the mutt iceberg, uh, uprising iceberg. But the group of mutts banding together and biting in serial killers in order to take out the pack and create a lawless society. So teeing up this particular episode, previously on Bitten, we revealed that the leader of the mutt uprising is a businessman played by James McGowan of the border, uh, though we don't know why just yet. We revealed that the real reason why Clay bit Elena was not, not because he was selfish and couldn't live without her, but because he was saving her life after pack leader Jeremy thought she'd seen him change. And we've sent Logan and his pregnant girlfriend Rachel, pregnant with a werewolf baby, though she doesn't know it, uh, on the road, playing for their safety. Isn't that a change to the Clayton, the little mechanics of why you bought yes. it? Yes, yes. Oh boy, you're playing with fire with that one. Yeah. But I think yeah. it worked really well. We, we talked about that, I remember, too, the motivation and what the... You know what would be acceptable for a TV audience and people that maybe hadn't read the books. Versus. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we, bef- just before we roll it, I, I this is one of those TV stories that I think makes everybody look good, so it's good to tell uh, tell it. This was wh- what we're going to watch tonight was not supposed to be the finale. No. So tell the story about how this came to be. Um. Okay. So I had written the episode, the outline for episode thirteen, while we were on hiatus. A few weeks before this, I was exhausted. I had taken the train to Montreal so I could write looking out a different window than my window in Toronto. And I had my producer hat on, and I wrote an episode that was fiscally responsible. Those are the the two most boring words for an audience fiscally responsible so especially for episode 13 so when the network read the episode outline they came in and they said you know we're space and our audience will expect an epic finale so what we want is epic mutt war and i remember wills mac writing this down it was like epic war and then he just put about Five dollar signs underneath that, <laughs> and this was super exciting, actually. And and we were just about to go into prep on one twelve, right. and because this is ser- is a serialized show, blowing up episode thirteen meant also blowing up acts four and five of one twelve. So it was it, but it was a fantastic note cuz it was like we don't care how responsible you feel to your budget your responsibility lies with your audience and so make this an epic mutt war and um we completely embrace that and so within about 10 minutes after the network leaving blew up acts 4 and 5 of episode 12 and it was like you know a bunch of stuff that's happening in episode 13 needs to move into four and five of 12. And then 13 was, uh, the first thing that we did was we went and walked the set and said, okay, we, to be fiscally responsible, we need to move this into our standing sets. 
so that we can afford to pay for everything that you're about to see. And we walked the sets and we said, what are the weapons in here that the audience has seen and not registered all the way along? Mm -hmm. And so there's stuff in the sets that we employed in that. And um, I, they also s said, you know, if you need to take a hiatus, go ahead. We understand. But it's like a... And there was some more money too, right? Yeah. So I, I didn't want I didn't want to take a, I didn't want to take a hiatus yeah. either because then you're the problem child. Yeah. And yeah, I was yeah. like, no, 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 we're not going to be the problem child. I will write that episode, and you know, I've got. I think I had I don't know. It was a crazy amount of time to turn it around. Mm -hmm. um, so I did a beat sheet and was like, this is what I think the beats will be for this episode, and went through the network, and they were like, go with that. So I think I had four days. Yeah, to write the episode. We were driving out to Hamilton because I also had to oversee the... Um, we were reshooting the teaser of the pilot at right. the same time. And Will was overseeing the shooting on 10 and 11. And we were driving out there, and I remember thinking, just ask him to co-write it with you. Just ask him to co-write it with you. And then I thought, no, 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 like... Because I'd never written an action... That's, yeah. where I, that, that's where I was intimidated. I'd never written action before. And I was like, no, 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 just, just buckle down and push through it and write your first action script and just see how it feels. And you have a great team of writers supporting you. And, you know, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. So I actually, for the first time, wrote the script standing up at, at countertops yeah. instead of sitting down at a desk and it was awesome because I was like I'd write and then I'd kick the air and punch the air and write some more and then sit in a chair for 10 minutes <laughs> get back up and write some more and punch the air and yeah so it was um, the most challenging and yet the best network note I've ever been given which is just start over honor uh, your audience and make it kick ass and with that, let's watch the result, and we'll talk to you afterwards. Thank you. So that was quite a quite a ride there. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, an incredible partnership between our director T.J. Scott, who um, I had first come to an awareness of T.J. while watching the final season of Spartacus, and w an episode that he directed. There are rare occasions where I'll start watching an episode, stop it after a couple minutes, and go back to see who's directed it. Uh, Michelle McLaren of Breaking Bad. T.J. Scott was one of these directors. He put together this phenomenal opening sequence of an episode of Spartacus, and I was like, who the hell did that? Mm -hmm. T.J. Scott, and he's Canadian. And just the timing worked out that we were able to get him for that episode. Our stunt coordinator, John Stead, who is incredible. And our actors who, I mean, a, a large part of what you saw was our actors and our, our stunt doubles as well. Incredible. Yeah. Let's talk about the actors for a second because obviously you've got that moment where in, early in the casting... You've been living with these scripts, and in the case of the pilot in the second episode, you've been living with them for most of two years, and now finally you're taking them out to people. Tell me about what you discovered through the casting process about these characters. And there's always that exciting moment as a writer when 
you've got somebody good and you start writing toward the actor. Yeah. So can you tell me about how, how that changed, how the people that you got changed your conception of, of writing those characters? Well, uh, we had auditioned almost every female of a certain age in Canada and Canadians who were in the States. And Laura was an offer. We hadn't actually auditioned her. So the first time that we saw her read was during the chemistry reads. And she was perfect. And she was so nervous because she, n none of us had even realized, because she was so great for the role that we were like, oh yeah, that's absolutely how, you know, the sides that I wrote are absolutely like that. Mm -hmm. And um, and then she said afterwards, I was really nervous during that. And I was like, but you just were Elena. And it was the first time that we sort of went, oh, yeah, right. We didn't actually see you audition. Like, that was the first audition was during the chemistry reads. Mm. Um, Grayston Holt came in. It's a t completely random story that Wills Mack, on his, an episode that he wrote for Motive, he had forgotten his iPad in the office. And the casting office in Vancouver was very close to my place. So I was like, I'll just swing by casting and drop off your iPad. And Grayston was late. Mm -hmm. And he was auditioning for this role in Motive. And he came in and auditioned. And it was a post-coital scene that he auditioned for. And I swear to God, my knees buckled. And I had to grab onto Will. And I was like, swoon. And uh, I was like, that's it. That's Clay. Like, the show hadn't even been green lit yet, I don't think. And I was like, if we ever get green lit, that's Clay. That's him. That's totally him. And our net, the network hadn't seen him since Durham County, really. Right. So it was, you know, kind of a sell for him. But for me, you, you know, he didn't have curly hair like in the book. But whatever. For me, I was like, oh, that's Clay. And uh, Steve Lund I'd worked with before on a web series in the Yukon. And Greg was actually, we had auditioned tons of Jeremy's, and it was like, Greg came to us at the last minute, and he's been perfect as Jeremy. I don't know if I answered your question. I'm just that's, raving about our cast. That's, you know, a bit of raving is not su such a bad thing. Yeah, Logan, I, uh, uh, Michael Xavier, who plays Logan, and Janelle, Rachel, like, they've, it, they've just been incredible across the board. And our mutts, most of whom we killed, Mm -hmm. uh, oh, sorry, but they were awesome while they lasted. It, it, was there a moment any any point during filming or during a read or anything like that where where the way they wanted to go with the character made you go differently with it or write to it or make you think differently? I mean, I, I find fast, you know, I mean, first of all, most people watching TV, you know, we, we're all annoyed as writers because, you know, everybody assumes the actors are making it up as they go along anyway. That's, yes. our, that's our curse. But Do but you write the action and the dialogue? Yeah, wow. Oh, oh, yes. It was really great. That must have been an ad lib, right? No, fuck you. I wrote that, you know? <laughs> but, uh, but there is an element of, um, you know, there's an element of greatness when you actually see it embodied. And I'm just sort of, well, oh, I mean, and the, and the thing when I visited the set when, on my episode, yeah. the thing that was really clear, even there, and that was episode three, was, Wow, this is a pretty cohesive cast. It's pretty yeah. amazing. They love each other and they hang out together and yeah. like they're fantastic. They're their own pack. Greg tweets like Jeremy. In like character. Yes. It's wicked. Yeah. You don't follow Greg Brick, man. You're missing out. He's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um it's some practical stuff just to get out of the way. Uh really, really, you know, we we gotta do the writing side of it. So uh how long are your scripts? Mm. 
it's it's not necessarily page count; it's a scene count. Um, right. But uh, we'll we'll see for season two. But generally around fifty two, fifty four is a good ballpark. How detailed do you get with your outlines? Season two more so than season one. Like season two, our outlines are around twenty pages, mm-hmm. which um, seems like a lot. But we're just really, I guess, excited about the new stuff that we're writing. So it's sort of. And also because there's it's a, n- a lot of new stuff. There's a new mythology that we're dealing with in season two. So we're trying to sort of a little bit of mow the explainer in our outlines. Sure. I don't want, uh, uh, you know, not, not to get into too much uh, spoilerish stuff because, you know, Bell Media will murder us both. But, <laughs> I can't. Uh, but, uh, but when you're approaching the architecture of a season, the beginning of it, and you're laying it out, you and I were talking about um, uh, things about the form of when you have 10 episodes or 13 how do you lay them out? How do you approach them in terms of, all right, here, uh, here's a story that we want to tell over 13? Uh, well, we didn't know that we were doing a 10-episode season until after we broke a 13-episode season. Mm-hmm. And the note that we got from the network on our 13-episode season was um, it could be tighter. And then they brought us down to 10 episodes. So it was like, tick, note addressed. Because um, we just took what we had in 13 and went... There you go. It's faster paced now. <laughs> awesome. Hey, problem solved itself. Yes. Um, you told me once, and this is, uh, it just struck me as an incredible number. And I think the number that you came up with was over 13 episodes with the various partners and the networks and stuff. You got 130 rounds of notes. Yes. So let's talk about notes. Uh, this is the, you know, one, one of the things I think is hardest for new writers to appreciate is just how much opinion you get on your story. Uh, but you have a really singular, great way of uh, dealing with notes. You're very positive. Even the ones that are stupid, you, um, <laughs> you really react to them very well. And uh, so do you have a philosophy of doing that? How do you, how do you approach mentally uh, the notes that you get, both good and bad? Um... I think there's a uh, sort of sense in tragedy plus time equals comedy. Um, or maybe tragedy that happens to someone else's comedy. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I think, well, you know, we bring them into the room and uh, we tear the shit out of notes and um, because, you know, we're our own little pack. And then um, take a breather. And within the core of any note is a truth. And uh, it may not be, the fix may not be right, but the bump is always right. Yep. Yeah. So our job is, um, you know, I'd say 75% of what we do is, as television writers, is um, figuring out how to address notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You were, when you started bitten uh this is the first thing you've ever shown on yes you were a co-showner yes so what's interesting i guess there's a lot of people that's an aspirational thing not for everyone there's plenty of people and i meet more and more every day people go oh god i don't even want to run my own show but but you know for a lot of writers that is the 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 final ambition so what do you know now that you didn't know a year ago uh just relax and let Mm -hmm. it (laughs) 
Let it <laughs> let I it flow. Tell, I can tell Will's Mac is like, That's oh awesome. God, yeah. she's so fucking West Coast. <laughs> um, everybody's got your back. Uh, you know, just uh, leap and the net will appear. There, I'm sure I just got more fuel for the fire. I mean, you know, you are flying by the seat of your pants so much. The thing that really got me watching you in the early development stage uh, was that you really, there's no Hamlet in you in the sense that you kind of know your own mind. And I think that kind of helps a lot. Did you find, you know, all those million, I mean, you know, when you're a showrunner, you, you have literally, you're being asked to make, 120 decisions a day. Yeah. Uh, did you find, what's the secret to that? Do you make them quickly? Do you go on your gut? Do you... Uh... It's, it, yeah, it's gut and taste. And there are things that um, writers would bring to the show, um, and they're fantastic ideas. So I'll give you two examples that were controversial, um, but they were right for the show. One was an idea that you brought for 103, which was um, Clay's going to kill this hipster. And why that was right for the show was because we wanted to establish early on that our characters are dealing in skewed morality. Yeah. And that we got some pushback on that. And um, we just, you know, I made the case for the fact that this is right for the show. The second one was Will Zemack. Um, brought to the table in the in episode eight, we have a confrontation between Clay and one of our mutts, Kane, and uh, there's a whole lot that goes on in that episode about love and trust and betrayal, and um, Clay ends up torturing Kane in a pretty um, uncomfortable way. Uh, he has a tool that is, what's it called? Yeah, a it's used for castrating cows. And so... You used to happen to have one in your living room, right? There, there was, yeah. it, was a, it was great fun for our props master to actually <laughs> go online and find this and just... And then when we shot the episode uh, and Zmack was on the floor for that, all the male crew during that scene just looked at him like, oh. Anyway, so Clay castrates Kane. And that again, that was, uh, it was right for the show. And there was pushback there. But it was like, no, no, no. In, um, this is what's right for the show in the morality that we've created. I don't even remember who said it to me once, but I remember one of the things that's always stuck with me, and I've said it so many times in different rooms now, is that, at a certain point, you have to tack toward the thing that scares you. Yes. And if it's, if it's something that makes people uncomfortable when they're reading it, great. Yeah. It's creating a feeling in you. And if that's, uncom- if that's discomfort, fantastic. That's the direction that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, before, <laughs> I, I got a fun question that we'll open it up to your, uh, your questions in a couple of moments here. Um, first of all, I, I, I guess... Do you see the episodes of season one as sort of a theme, and are there different? Co- what are the different colors that you're going to explore in season two? I mean, do you, do you think of that way? Do you think of overall themes to seasons? Is that is that something you you do or not? 
Yeah. I mean, season one was um, sort of accepting the family that you're with. Um, season two, we've sort of been talking about a theme of let the right one in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that won't make any sense until you see season two. Right. Um, but it's really about where's Elena at and what what's her arc for the season. Mm-hmm. So in this one, it is, in season one, it is um, finding strength through who she is and coming to, to um, being in, a, in an empowered place okay. by accepting what she is. Cool, cool. Um, I want to sort of ask you about, uh, there's an argot that happens sort of in, in writer's rooms. You, you, you go for a lot of shorthand and you make up a lot of st- uh, uh, terms and you talk about things in certain ways and there's there's lots of uh, I, 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 Dagan is somebody who who seems particularly uh, colorful in, in, in coining terms and uh, terms that I think stick and, and in this podcast I sort of want to send this term out in the world because I think it needs to be part of uh, the lexicon for writers I, explain to me what floof is floof is well it's a the first part of Floof is when we were on J-Pod um, and Sally Caddo was our CBC executive, she would ask for what was the heart moment mm-hmm. of a scene. And so when we were breaking episodes, we would say, this is the heart moment. And then we'd go, <laughs> So Floof is um, the more sort of visceral animal form of the heart moment, which is what is the point at which Clay or Nick or Logan or Jeremy does something so incredibly sexy that women's clothes will just fall off. Floof. Floof. And there's a male version too, right? Uh, yeah. I would have to hand the mic to Will's Mac to do that sound. Can we do the, the sound there? I can't quite do this sound, but it's the sound of when Laura does something su- super sexy. Her pants falling. There you go. Yes. But... Uh, now, th- th- any other sort of uh, sort of like writer-only terms that you uh, that you like that you uh, use all the time, the shorthand uh, that you appreciate? Um, uh, <laughs> what can we share? Um, I don't this know. I have like sometimes I feel like I'm having a stroke while I'm writing, and right. I but there are like phrases that come in that. Yeah. There was one on motive, buy for your liking. I don't know what that means, but I know what it means. Buy for your liking. Yeah. Hmm. B-Y for your liking. Um, and we, yeah, we have some other ones that are just, I don't know. What do we have? Talk, Mitch. Talk about Mitch, yeah. Mitch, Mitch is important. Mitch is if you're on a show and you get a pass done on your script, that's basically just... <laughs> okay. Uh, there was a, a a website of this <laughs> fellow <laughs> who was a copperphiliac. And this actually came to us via James Hurst, who was the writer on The Listener. And he liked to smear feces on himself. So yes. a mitching is if you hand in a draft and it gets a rewrite that you detest because somebody has just smeared their own shit over your draft. That's very rare, very rare, and never on Bitten. Good night, everybody. No. <laughs> um, I think it's important. To, I mean, basically, what, what this illustrates, writers are horrible people. Yeah. And, uh, and we say horrible things to get through the day. <laughs> Your uh, script took a mitching. 
But to tack 180, last question, I guess, before we go to the, uh, the audience here. Um, I guess, you, you know, we, we, we do a pretty cool job, and we're incredibly lucky. And, you know, we complain about stuff all the time, and there's such silly, arcane complaints because we're very, very privileged. But, you know, you, you're in rarefied air now with, uh, with running this show and doing such a great job on it. Um, so if you but, had but to... But to that, to that, no, we also put ourselves out there. Yeah, that's true. By, by writing and by, you know, putting first drafts out there and by being judged and noted on them and stuff. Right. So, yeah, there's a... So what is your advice to those new, the new, the, the new writers, the writers that aren't able to finish things, the writers that, you know, aren't sure if they've got it in them yet? Like, do you have a set of advice? I mean, it's, it's the number one thing everybody else comes up How do I get into what you do? Which is a boring question because the, the, the truth is, you know, luck and hard work. But what's the most, what was the hardest one piece of writing knowledge that it took you a long time to, to learn that you wish you'd been able to learn earlier? Um, well, I learned it late and it was this episode. Mm-hmm. And because I had never written action before, and I was I was paralyzed by this for, you know, I only had six days to turn around a draft, and for two days I was, you know, pulling the, I was like Brian Wilsoning, and I was like, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it, and then it's like, you know what, you can do it, mm-hmm. and you kind of have to do it. Also, there's nothing more motivating than a deadline, um, so just do it. Just believe in yourself and do it. Yeah, you got backed into a corner. Yes. And I think that so much of what, like, that's what we do. Successful writers, it's weird. You back yourself into corners, and you've got to write your way out. Yeah. And, and that's how you get through it. And, and there's some weird, like, the, the voice in your head that's like, you can't do this. Fuck that voice. And just be like, I'll show you, stupid voice, and stand up at a countertop and punch the air and write it and finish it. Okay, well, I think that's a pretty good place to throw it open to your questions. So the floor is open. Who has a question of Dagan Franklin? We have a very uh, uh, eager beaver here. What we'll do is, uh, we're not going to pass a mic, are we? We're not, right? Oh, you got a mic. Awesome. That's much better. That's right. Uh, Great uh, episode. Enjoyed that very much. Uh, was the floof moment when the expectant father had blood on his on his bum and he licked his <laughs> hand? Was that the floof moment? In that, one? <laughs> that was one of a floof moment. I don't know. Well, did thirteen have a floof moment? Maybe in the tub in the beginning because that's our main romantic couple, and that scene actually is cut short. That scene um, for those people who are interested in the DVD, we'll be showing on the DVD, the extended scene, which uh, actually has Elena dropping dress and getting into the tub with him. Yeah. Sexy. Uh, that wasn't my real question, though. Oh. Uh, oh. Ah, two-parter. Sorry, that's a cheat. It's a cheat. I, I'm curious. Uh, I've never written live-action action, and I'm curious how much detail you put in there. Like, that that hallway fight was awesome. Did uh, How, oh, how much uh, words were in the script for that? I, I, gosh, I can't even remember. I think it was they fought down the. We I refer to this as the Kubrick hallway because of the the depths of it. Um, they fight down the Kubrick hallway towards the kitchen, and then it was our our stunt coordinator John Stead 
working with the actors that really blew it out. And so he would sort of work stuff out, and then I would come down, or or as Mac would let me know what was happening on set, and then I would add that into the script. That incredible run that our um, stunt actor does down the hallway, that was a discovery, I think, not on the day, but in the stunt rehearsals. He was like, I can do this thing. I don't know if you're interested in seeing it. And TJ was like, yeah, I'd love to see it. And then when he did that, it was like, holy crap, that's so cool. That's cool yeah. He could he did it twice, and then it's like, can you do it four times? Yeah, he could do it four times. And so that was just a, a discovery. Yeah, it's that weird sort of thing where you want to, you know, I think, again, the new, the new writer impulse is to try to spell out a shot, or shot after shot after shot, which is sort of like giving actors line readings. They hate it. But but it's almost like you want to write something that evokes something so your stunt coordinator, or your director gets excited, and then they well, come up with a thing. In this one, uh, because I was like, you know, fangirl coming at action. So at the point at which Clay um, and and this is you know is an homage to Straw Dogs, the vat of oil on mm. on the stove. So the point at which Clay takes Boggs's hand and sticks it in, I'm writing like. And then he does this. And in all caps, I went, super ouch. Because he's like, he punches him, ouch. And then this happens, super ouch. So that's my whatever new action writer lingo of like, this is the next level of ouch. This is the uber super ouch. And so that kind of became this uh, onset thing of like, oh, we're going to do the super ouch. Super ouch gets you the big money. Thank you. That was a great question. Uh, we have another question here. Let's go down in front. Yes. So I was just wondering, uh, are there any particular scenes that you just had so much fun with that you had to tell everyone about them? And are there any particular characters who you like writing for better than others? Uh, well, I don't know. We like writing for all the characters. They're, they're different. Like, um, Elena, I'm able to get out some of my own, you know, personal demons in there. Um, Nick is like vicarious, crazy sexual adventures. Jeremy is like, you know, this is the way and the truth and the light. And then um, Clay is like, oh, you're an animal. Uh, I'm trying to think if there were scenes that we had. I don't know. Like our cast is just so unbelievably fun to work with. I, love, I like Carl. Like oh, like yeah. I mean, they're all so good. And, yeah, so it was just, I mean, I was on set for about a third to half of the episodes, and, and um, Grant Rosenberg was on set for a lot. Wills Mack was on set for a lot. There were, yeah, I mean, this was a pretty super fun episode to write because we shot most of it on our sets, um, so we didn't have to go out, drive out to Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Um but driving out to Cambridge is fun, too, because we stay at this hotel, and we get to witness Grayston Holt eating two plates of wings <laughs> every night that he's there. It's, a, it's incredible. Actus. Yeah. Uh, yes, we're right down in front there. Thank you to all the like uh, writers who came and also to the show fans who came. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, ooh, ooh, microphone. Um, my question is... Uh, do you still, planning for the second season, do you still refer back to the novels for source material or has the TV show sort of taken on a life of its own at this point? Uh, what a great question. Yeah, I mean, they, they, 
come from the novels, and so um, you know we're we're going slightly off novel uh, at the onset of season two, um, but there will be stuff that novel fans are excited about as well. Yeah, I remember you telling when when, when we did the f- development room in Vancouver, you told me I deliberately didn't read any of the other novels. I just read Bitten, but you did tell me to read the. Um, Men of the Other World? Yeah. Or Tales of the Other World? Uh, well, both of them. Yeah. And I found those actually super helpful. Yeah. The, uh, the, 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 the stories. Yeah. 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 So there's stuff that we're, do- we're looking at in season two that's, you know, we have a little bit more backstory to help flesh out the characters that we haven't fleshed out before and then moving, you know, into a crazy new world. Great. Thanks for that. Um, other questions? Let's go right down the corner here. I was just wondering, when you were staffing for the show, was it mostly on what the uh, um, people previously had done? Or d- for like lower-level writers, did you uh, look at exi- exi- specs or existing shows or pilots or features? And, and also, uh, uh, for season two, are you, um, uh, are you, making, are you allowed to make the uh, staff bigger, generally? Uh, our staff is slightly bigger in season two, even though we have fewer episodes. So in season two, um, all the episodes are be r- being written in staff. As opposed to in season one, we had three episodes that were freelanced. Um, so uh, for the majority of people that I was looking at, I had worked with before. Um, and then people who I hadn't worked with before, uh, I w- was looking at original. Um, yeah, original specs. Because to me, it was the, the best example of if given a world to create, how would you create it and how would you know, if given free reign, what would you do? I think it's oh, Michael McLennan is here too, up there. Oh. He's a, he's with us on season two. Oh, great, there you yeah. go. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting that that has been a shift. Canada shifted there first. You know that I think people want to look at originals more than they want to look at specs now, generally because you know, what's your clean shot, right? Yeah, and I should also shout out to Garfield. Uh, who's right there, who was uh, with us on season one and season two. Awesome. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Another question. Let's go go here. Um, This actually builds a bit on what you were just talking about. You're talking about creating the world. That's one of the biggest challenges um, in pitching sci-fi that people often talk about, how you have to explain a mythology as opposed to just characters or, you know, cops, doctors, lawyers. So right. what is your approach when pitching genre material? Uh, I would say find the thing that's universal and pitch that. Um, the world that you're creating around the universality is going to be complex, but the thing that, that a network or a studio is going to connect with is how do I, the human, relate to what this world, what's happening in this world? And the universality of that love triangle, um, you know, Hatfields, McCoys, whatever it is, that's what they're going to respond to. You know, I did a panel in Vancouver, and I, I did one at the Toronto Screenic Conference, uh, sci-fi, and we were talking about this. Um, do you find that, do you find networks are, are scared of sci-fi or scared of the genre element? Is that why you got to hide it sometimes? Sometimes, uh, you know, there's people that talk about that that's what, that you you know that the reason why you pitch the universality is because even you know a network like sci-fi or space they're scared of the thing that is the genre element. Well, I think I don't know if they're scared about it because that's what they do. Mm-hmm. I think that they're 
when it comes in and it's cool, they're excited about what is the thing that makes this different? What is, you know, the, the, the universality of Battlestar Galactica is terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that makes it cool is that we're the terrorists. And, sure. you know, the, the, um, all the sort of crazy universe building around that is, is fascinating. Yeah. There is that sort of tendency because you love, if you love genre, you love it because you love all the details of sci-fi. And that is kind of, you know, I've worked out five seasons of my show. It's not necessarily the thing you want to pitch. The thing you want to pitch is what are the real human emotions behind it. And that really does get, that actually does get you farther. Um, we have a question here. Speaking about human emotions, one of the things I hear the most is how difficult it is in a script to give a different voice to each character. And when I was watching the episode, I didn't notice in the text a lot of difference in the speaking of each character. So my question is, do you count on the actors to inject this? Or how do you deal with that while writing the script? Um... I guess that's sort of a sideways compliment. <laughs> um, in this, well, I think our characters are, um, they are quite different in terms of, I mean, this is a particular episode where everybody's activated after a certain uh, focal point. But um, generally, Clay is quite serious. Nick is our comic relief. Jeremy is uh, sort of commander-in-chief, and Elena is um, the one who is sort of the um, questions. But there also is that commonality of the fact that they're, you know, pack, which is super family, I guess, kind of. You know, and there's, an art, there's a, a shared sort of sensibility there. Although I do remember you talking about in the early, in the early parts of it, and I, I was actually, um, I thought it was interesting that you did pull it off in some of them, that there's, there's no back and forth of Elena, Toronto to Bear Valley. Um, Elena Toronto sounded kind of a little different, especially when, when she was with Philip and with, uh, you know, uh, yeah. her Toronto people than when, when she's with the pack. Yeah. Well, and she looks different too. I mean, mm -hmm. she, her wardrobe is different. Her, the hair makeup is different. Like she wears makeup in Toronto and in Bear Valley we peeled away uh, makeup and hair and God bless Laura for being brave enough as an actress to let us just, now you're going without makeup. Mm -hmm. Enjoy that. Um, and also Toronto, it was heels and, and like the whole wardrobe is different between the two worlds as well. And, right. and so her demeanor is different between the two worlds. Great. It's like Vancouver, Toronto. Uh, do we have other questions anywhere else? Oh, we have lots of them. Let's uh, let's go with uh, here, and then let's go to, go on the end. I have a production question. Can I ask a production question? Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, first of all, I have to say that the floof moment for me was the bathtub fight. <laughs> Actually, and Jeremy. Um, <laughs> and also, I want to congratulate you on your first action script because the action was awesome in that episode. Thank you. It, was, uh, it takes a village, but thank you. It was, no, it was it was it was really great. But I'm, my question is because there was so much fighting and action and effects in that, and I know that that takes a lot of time. 
and I was so surprised to hear from you that a the network said you should go full on all out hardcore, big war. When all I ever hear in uh, when we're prepping a, uh, an episode is we have to pull it back, we have to pull it back, we can't afford to do that. So you had said that there was more money for this episode. So I'm cu just curious if you're allowed to tell me that. And also, did this because there was so much stunting in this episode? Did it take? What is your normal um, uh, days per to shoot an episode? And did you get more time to shoot the finale? I think we did. Uh, we normally shoot seven-day episodes. Um, but this one, I think we had eight or nine days. We, we robbed some time because we block shot 10 and 11 uh, and really crunched James Dunnison on that. Um, that bought some time for 13 because we sort of shifted 12 forward and bought some time for 13. So when I wrote the first draft of, and I didn't have time to outline, I just went straight to draft on 13, which is beautiful. Um, when I wrote the first draft and it went into our line producer, it was $1 million <laughs> over budget. And so uh, we then cracked into it and found ways to save money. And um, so there was some, some breakage that came from a number of sources to help us pay for this. But this was not to pattern at all. Well, it was certain things like, okay, so when the fights break out, you know, stunt actors cost a certain amount per day. So um, the f that's why the fights happen in individual rooms. So it's like that fight happens in the tub room and that, in that room alone. It doesn't spill into other parts of the set. And the fight that Nick has with the mutt in Elena's bedroom, that only happens in that room. And so that's because we can bring that stunt actor in for that one day, shoot that fight out, and move on. And if those fights moved into other rooms, as they did in the first draft, then that's maybe two days for that stunt actor. So if we just contain the fights to certain rooms, that's a certain amount of savings. There were some other things like, I think I had the mutts all running at the house. And that would have been a you know, $10,000 shot to bring everybody out yeah. to our location, put them at, up, have them all running at the house so that shot doesn't exist because that would have been a chunk of change. Great. Uh, we have a question on the end there. Uh, just wondering about uh, putting your room together for the second season. Uh, you mentioned a bit about like, when you put the development room together like with Dennis, you brought him in for action, I believe you mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, so now for the second season, uh, are you looking at bringing in, like, are you, did you bring in just genre writers? Did you look to uh, other... Uh, I guess uh, I was going to say other genres, but uh, you guys into drama or something like that to bring people in to deal with relationships. Uh, just had, what were you thinking when we put that together? Well, our our basis is character, and so our our new writers are all writers who are fantastic at the character level first and foremost. So we have Michael McLennan, um, who came to us from Bomb Girls, and Larry Bambrick, who was on Played, and Jen Engels, who had previously been on Less Than Kind. Um, Will's Mac has returned, and and Garfield as well. And so, yeah, like as, you know, if our characters are being served first and foremost, then we'll build the plot from there. 
uh, the same genre writers, I, f I feel, uh, yeah, is not really fair, um, just because, like you say, it, you know, you're dealing with characters in this anyways. Um, yeah, so I guess if you're looking at scripts then from, from people, are you, you'll go beyond just looking at like their genre yeah. script. And, I mean, yeah. I didn't write genre before this, so somebody took a, you know, took a leap of faith with me. There's way less specialization of that kind. In, uh, in Canada, yeah. Our industry yeah. is small enough that, you know, I mean, when we met, you were doing a comedy, yeah. right? And I was out yeah. doing a, a vampire show. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've written comedy, you've written, you know, it's, it, 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 it's not... It's not at like in L.A. where you just do one thing and you pigeonhole that for your entire yeah. career. I mean, there's enough procedural in Canada now. There's enough yeah. genre in Canada now that you can specialize in that. But, um, you know, we've been doing this for a while, and so it was like you had to have everything in your toolbox when you were starting out. Yeah. And that may still be the case. Yeah. Uh, what's some other... Oh, we haven't gone here. Let's go, let's go back there. Oh, hi. How are you? <laughs> Okay, I'll repeat the question because it was off mic. Do you write with theme in mind when you're pitching the episode or when you're writing an episode? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, I like to keep, you know, a sort of one-line thing that I write on on a Post-it note and I stick on the my laptop and think about that and how that's... Uh, all the characters are sort of filtered through that. But it, then I also sometimes am just like, what's the cool thing that's in this episode? Um, and... Let me yeah. follow up on that question. Do you ever start, do, how often do you write thinking it's about one thing and at the end it turns out it was about something else? All the time. Discover the theme in the writing. Um, uh, more questions. We have time for a couple of more, I think, probably. So who's got a really good one? We have really good questions here tonight. It's really amazing. Uh, nobody else? Oh, we go way at the back, way at the back. This is good. We have good geographic representation from the room. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, when you start you, and you're breaking kind of the season arc, do you leave a lot of room for discovering things as you go as you're writing the scripts? Like, how much leeway do you have to evolve as the season progresses? Uh, a lot, actually. And, and this season, we've been doing that. I mean, we, we sort of knew coming into this season... These are the major tentpole events that we want to hit. Um, but moving back and forward, it's like, you know, um, an interview that I heard earlier today, I said it's like we drywall and then we spackle backwards and then we drywall forwards and then we spackle backwards. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of room for serendipity. Um, I think this season we'll probably have more scripts written. I'm probably just totally jinxed us by saying that. Before we go to camera, and but you don't want to have everything written before you go to camera in an ideal world because you want to see also, you know, we've got a bunch of new cast coming in this season. What's the chemistry like? You know, who works, who doesn't work? Um, it, are there moments of sort of connection between certain actors that you want to play off of and and have some room to deal with that also? Great. Two more questions. Two more, or maybe one more. We have one more. Oh, you're not going to leave me hanging here, are you? No, there we go. So I guess this will be the last question. Oh, it's not very interesting. I wondered whose head was on the bed at the end of the episode. Oh, that was uh, Philip. That was the human boyfriend from Toronto. Yeah. 
Jeez, you kind of closed off that love triangle a little. Uh, Lori love triangle. A little triangle. firmly. Yeah. Didn't want to leave that uh, thread hanging, I guess. She's got well, you know, a here, soulmate. She's got a soulmate. Yeah. yeah. Soulmate. She said stop bouncing back and forth. How, how seriously did you take, because I remember <laughs> in the early parts of the season where, you know, there was some speculation on the internet, which, which we never read. Never. Ever. ever right? Diligently. But there was some uh, s- speculation that they're not going to they're, they're not gonna bring Clay and Elena together, and I'm going to, you know, you, you didn't quite get death threats, but it was getting fruity there for a while. It was getting pretty, pretty ripe. Did you, uh, did you ever consider not going there? No, 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 no. <laughs> Those two are meant to be together, goddammit. <laughs> Oh, I can't say God damn it in the States. Cut that out for the States. That's right, but only yeah. for the States. Well, when we conform, we'll, we'll take it out. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the, uh, the key to actually good television, I think, or making good television from the writer's side, from the showrunner's side, is always generosity. And the thing that's great about Dagan is that she's an incredibly generous person. She's lucky. Some of the people that are here tonight, Michael and Garfield and, and Wills Mack especially, um, you've got a great team putting this show together. You guys clearly have a ball putting it together. And I think that that always leaks onto the screen. And uh, so I would like it very much if you would all uh, put your hands together and, and uh, thank Dagan Frickland for being with us tonight. And Dennis McGrath. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, log on to iTunes and leave us positive feedback. Come on, you can do that, right? Feel free to retweet this podcast. And if you want to hit me up on Twitter, my handle is at HeyWriterBoy. Email us at WritersTalkingTV at gmail.com. That's WritersTalkingTV, one word, at gmail.com. Special thanks to Tiff, Bell Lightbox, E1, and Space. This podcast is brought to you by the Writers Guild of Canada, the people who support the people who write kick-ass Canadian TV. The show's technical producer is Philip Vukovic. I'm Dennis McGrath, and remember, as Dagan says, floof.